This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hey, hey, hey! Come on, show me hands, bitch! Back the fuck up, little hopper. I'm police. Yeah, I know. You the police who like to fuck with a nigga. Turn around. Hey. Hey, yo! You ain't gonna hear the next one. Get on your knees, cross them legs, knit them hands, come on. <laughs> Payback. If I wouldn't have pushed you off, you would've never been up on that corner. But everything I do, I'd be fucking up. Whole time it feel like it wasn't me on that corner. I just wanted to get away. Need a crowbar. For what? This is a tomb. Lex is in there. All right, man, we are now just two episodes away from finishing season four. We are now on episode 11 called A New Day. And it's very appropriately titled that because there's a lot of hope and optimism running through the police department about, yeah, is that for all the shenanigans and nonsense and bullshit that we've seen go down with this police department, it feels like they're turning a corner because Karketi, who has come in there and promised the earth, the moon, the stars, the quasars, and said he will not go down like previous mayors before him and start depending more on empty, useless stats than actual police work and fundamentally changing things in the department. And to help him usher in change they can believe in is, of course, one major. He's major now, right? Major right. Cedric Daniels. So it is a new day in many respects for a lot of people in this episode and not just the police uh, either um, when it comes to sort of this new horizon. Some of these new days aren't necessarily welcome days. They're just a new day that brings some of the same old bullshit that they've been dealing with before. So, Van, what were some of your takeaways from episode 11? Well, there's a couple of things. I had a couple of things written down. Glitches in communication, big in this episode. Mm-hmm. And the illusion of change. Yeah, that's is, probably a better is, way to put it. An illusion well, of a new day. <laughs> the illusion of a new day is kind of the way that I put it. And, you know, because of the illusion, it's very, very, um, they pull it off really well. It seems as if this is a much more victorious episode of The Wire than we've seen. This is one where it seems like a lot of our favorite characters are getting what they want. A lot of them have great moments. And there are some, re- there is some resolution to some pretty outstanding questions that have been going on. You know, like, for example, where are these bodies being stashed? All of these people that we know are being killed, but we can't find them. You end up finding out in this episode exactly, or should I say, we knew, but the police end up finding, you know, at the very end of it, where these people are going. So in a way, it's it, it was an episode that had a lot to do with people thinking that they've won. Yeah, because um, and, and to that point, you know, a perfect example of that is when, you know, Rawls had been kind of playing these political games and doing this gamemanship, thinking that he was solidifying, if not increasing or enhancing his position. And Valchek lets him know, like, oh, you do know you're sitting here grooming your replacement. That is right. that is Cedric Daniels. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a new day is coming. But sometimes it's not the day that you imagine that it's sometimes be. it's not your new day. No, sometimes it's somebody else's and it comes right. at your your expense, which right. is certainly the case with Rawls. I had um, two thoughts as I watched this episode. One was, 
Do you think Officer Walker is a young Carver? Oh, no. No? You don't think Carver was ever? Not that bad. Okay. Because I wonder, given, you know, we saw him when he's already, uh, you know, made his way into narcotics. And so it made me wonder what he was like as a street cop. And is if if this was something that he was like from the beginning, and we we've seen a full transformation with Carver, uh, of, of course. But I wondered in the beginning, early stages, was he more like Officer Walker? You know, Walker's crazy. Oh, Walker's, Walker's the worst. A, and I, I got yeah, some no. great trivia on him. He's he's okay. Tell me, who do you think is worse, Walker or Vice Principal Donnelly? Walker, because people have been making points about Vice Principal Donnelly to me that I kind of. Were we too hard on her? I don't know. Maybe we were because people are making the point that, you know, she's the vice principal of the school. She has got to investigate the rape and protect the young girl and all of those things like that. I just thought that she went way too far in trying to hang a snitch jacket on Randy. And and she almost, you know, she exploited him in a way. But people have been. And Vice Principal Donnelly, as you watch the show, she has been very supportive of the... uh, the program, the program. That, you know, yeah. yeah. So maybe we're a little bit, but I think that uh, that but she she still sucks. But I think that um, but she's just not as bad as I, as I as I as I as I, as I cast her before. I think Walker is Walker is a terrorist man. He's, he's like, a psychopath. Like he, he's he, out like, of control. Walker, Walker broke a kid's fingers really for no reason. I don't think Harvard would have ever done something like that. Walker mm-hmm. is just Walker stole from Bubs. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think Carver would have ever... I don't think... Car, I think Carve was a little bit of a cowboy, but I can never say that Carve was, like, not just an asshole, but Walker is is a sociopath. Like, he he likes to see people in pain. He likes to fuck with people. I never get that. I never get that from Carve. The other thought that occurred to me was, in terms of putting the final piece together, was this Lester's greatest puzzle piece that he fit in terms of finding out what was really in the vacants because, you know, usually with him, there's a trail that he starts and and he meticulously puts everything together through the tedious stuff that people don't like to to do, paperwork, documents, you know, property, like all kinds of things that, you know, that don't really scream exciting police work, even with the docs, with the containers and they're figuring out this, you know, that's meticulous work. But for him to have been as duped as he was in this and for as long as he was in this and then to put it all together the way that he did, I wondered, was this the crowning achievement for uh, Lester in this series? It was the quickest. Yeah. It certainly was the quickest. But it wasn't that quick, though, because if you think about when he first started looking into Marlowe, that was last season. Right. I know. But when I say, but I'm just talking about finding out the bodies like he didn't have, you know, they were looking around from him. But as soon as he got the information from Hurt, Hurt said nail gun, Lester had it. Right. Like they go to the field, they interview Hurt, Hurt tells him the whole story. Lester goes down to the playground. He looks there. Lester well, remember had he it. talked to Prez first because Prez gave him. Talks said, to I'll Prez. Give... Right. Prez yep. hooks him up with Hurt. That was a nice moment, by the way. And then he goes down there and he, he figures it out. Soft eyes. He sees the new the new nails in there and, and, and kind of the whole deal. So he realizes that the nail gun was probably for building a tomb. And he says one of the best lines that I love uh, from the show. That's a tomb. Lex is in there. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But it certainly was just, it shows you what an efficient detective he is because the only reason why he hadn't figured it out way before then is because he didn't have all the information. The streets had information that Lester didn't have. And as soon as he had the same information as the streets, he figured it out. Yeah. And he was also smart enough to not alienate her, even though he knew he had fucked up. I mean, Monk is just like going off on him ridiculously. And he knew that in order for him to get the information out of her that he required, that he was going to have to almost make him seem like he wasn't as big of a fuck up as he actually was. And that, of course, is what led to him discovering the tomb, as he so appropriately called it. All right. uh, Here's a recap of a lot of the things that happened here in episode 11. So as we just talked about, Lester finally figures out that Marlowe has been stashing all the dead bodies in the vacant homes. Kind of an ingenious plan because, you know, to, to store bodies in buildings that no one wants and no one wants to live in that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of made sense. You wonder why somebody didn't think of it before then. 
You, you kind of do. It's like, it's one of those, it sort of reminds me of, say, um, you know, something something obvious like, a, you know, like Napster or like streaming music. It's like, <laughs> damn, somebody didn't think about this before. <laughs> like, kind of surprising that they didn't, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. Yeah, it's just one of those kind of plans where you're just like, wow, since nobody thought, let's store bodies in homes that are vacant and that nobody will ever come looking for because nothing helps a bet, a, like a, a bet, an aid murder than city incompetence. So (laughs) Marlo used that to his advantage. Bubbles, his revenge on Herc turns into a political nightmare for everybody because the pastor Herc pulled over is connected politically and is able to get a sit down with Carcetti, which is going to mean very damaging things for Herc's future. This has now gone well above his pay grade. And it's not just about the collateral damage that it has on Herc's career, but actually on several people who are involved from Carcetti to Daniels to Rawls. That's why in, in many respects, um, Bubbles' revenge on Herc is like one of the greatest of this series because of what the the ripple effect was, was crazy. It turns the city upside down. It turns the city upside down. So it just shows you is that the old phrase is uh, treat people right when there's nothing they can do for you, right? right. It's like... Um, and he and he did not treat Bubbles right. So it's hard for anybody to feel any kind of empathy for Herc. Omar, uh, speaking of great detectives, Omar, because he's made this promise to bunk, not to put as many bodies or any bodies on the street, he has now turned into Batman of the detective game. <laughs> and a yellow cab right. is his uh, is his Batmobile, the Omar mobile, if you want to call mm-hmm. it. Uh, his surveillance of Marlowe and all those connected pays off. And he figures out something very key that Slim Charles and Prop Joe have been partnering and that there is something called a co-op or a coop. A coop. <laughs> a coup. And he figures out how all these pieces are connected. And he says something that's uh, that's great. The more we learn, the less we know. Yep. <laughs> and that's all very true. Carver, unfortunately, learns what a costly mistake it was to put Randy in Herc's hands. And he's now seeing the full ramifications, or not the full, but most of it, because there's right. still more to come. Because this is something, if people follow the buildup of this Randy situation, this is something that takes five or six episodes to fully play out. And now he is seeing that he made a grave mistake trusting Herc with Randy and that situation. Bunk never got to talk to Randy. so. Lex's murder could have been solved way beforehand. A lot of things could could have happened on a positive note if Herc just does what he was told to do, which right. was give him to bunk, right? And then mm-hmm. on top of that, if you recall, another little piece of this is that Bunk, remember, he had pissed off the two detectives when he went behind them on Omar to try to prove that Omar wasn't the one who shot the civilian and beat up old face Andre, and Carver mm-hmm. calls Bunk to ask about the progress with Randy and the dude throws the message away. So Bunk had no idea that his case was out there and ready to be solved. And it has devastating impact and ripple effect on Randy and also on her too as well. Sure. So there's a lot there, that happens. Everybody with, lost in that dysfunction. Yes, everybody lost. And as we have seen so many times in The Wire, when the cop's ego when they get involved, it's usually bad for everybody. Yeah. On a lesser note, and we're going to dive into him as a character deep dive, uh, Sherrod returns to Bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, we're going to talk more in depth about Bubbles. Uh, he's somebody we have talked about throughout the course of, obviously, this podcast. We've done a deeper character look at him throughout or before, rather, but it's time to do another one because Bubbles has what they call a fluid situation. So at this point, Van, uh, where do we kind of find Bubbles? What's his station in life? Bubbles is being hunted by one of the most frightening uh, drug addicts that I've ever seen on screen. He's like the Incredible Hulk of drug addicts. Right. He is like like the the Thor of drug addicts. I don't know what is up with this dude. Yeah, Uh, Bubbles actually says... (laughs) <laughs> Bubbles says he's like the Terminator. The Terminator, right. Uh, yeah, Bubbles says, Bubbles <laughs> says he's, like the, he's like the Terminator. And this guy, and, and it also shows you just kind of the, how usury works, right? And so usury is, by definition, a one-way street. Bubbles has thought that he is a part of the police officers, that he is like one of them, that he could almost be deputized. He rides around with them, stuff like that. But 
People only needed him when they needed him. So now he's willing to work, willing to do whatever. Kima, God bless her, is in a different spot where she doesn't really need Bubbles anymore or really can't even help Bubbles anymore. And the people that are left in major crimes on the street don't have the relationship with him where they think of him as a human being. You know, they have a relationship with him where they think of him as, you know, someone who can see the street for them or someone who can do something for them. So Bubbles is asking for something that's very, very simple for her to do. Say, listen, I'll give you whatever you want. There's a guy, all he's actually asking the police to do is their job. I'm being robbed. Granted, I'm selling illegal stuff, but still, I'm being robbed and assaulted. I'm going to tell you when I am being robbed and assaulted. Can you please supply me with help to keep me safe? Refuses to do that. There's always something more important than the police officer doing their job. Think about that. There's something in the way, right? There's a meeting in the way. I think one time for her. I think another time he was interrogating someone or talking to somebody. I can't remember, but there are a couple of things. But there's always something in the way of her actually protecting a citizen who is unsafe, which is the job of the police. So that dysfunction comes back to bite not just her, but the entire police department because Bubbles has enough. He doesn't get lied to. And Bubbles is not a passive guy, by the way. He isn't an assertive dude. You know, he's not physically anyone who's going to fight or throw down or do anything like that. But mentally, Bubbles knows how to get what he wants and he knows how to fuck who fucks him, which is precisely what he does. He decides that, you know, Herc has done what he's done, so he fucks her. But the Bubbles that we see right now is a Bubbles that is more depowered than he's been for a couple of seasons. You know, he's more depowered. He's, he's, he's lonely because he doesn't have Sherrod. He has no companion. He is uh, sort of at the bay of the streets. You know, he doesn't have the cops there to protect him. This is a more alone, more solitary, more vulnerable Bubbles than we've seen. And you think that you can't be any more vulnerable than walking around the streets with his pants off than he was a couple of seasons ago. But he is. He is. And it's, it's he's one of the favorite characters. And to be honest with you, it's tough to see him that way. And that's what makes this kind of more eye-opening is that just by being an addict, you know, Bubbles is always going to be vulnerable, but he's at his absolute weakest in this situation because the police used to be kind of a safe haven for him. They had their own little system. It, you know, they were a mismatched band of three amigos. You had Kima, yeah. McNulty, and Bubbles. That was the crew. Wow. That was the whole crew. That was the whole crew. And with McNulty and, and Kima, Bubbles got used to a certain amount of safety yeah. and protection. And frankly, respect, because, you know, uh, I remember that one occasion where Bubbles had, again, helped them solve another crime or provided some missing piece. And McNulty gave him extra money. He was like, shit, I respect the work. You know, they respected what Bubbles brought to the table. And see, Hurt right. does not. Now, this new environment is not conducive to that anymore. And so, you know, Kiba's kind of moved on. And while she hasn't forgotten about Bub, she's just not in the same position to look out for him the way that she used to. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, his companionship, you know, even though he was definitely, certainly uh, Johnny was no protector, but there was a certain strength that Bubbles had with him because it was sort of like a strength in numbers. Yeah, another person that he, that uh, could relate to his experiences. Obviously somebody he could conspire with no matter how stupid the plan was. But we're kind of seeing... Bubs basically in the midst of a rock bottom. Right. Because uh, he is getting bullied on the street. Because even the streets were a safe haven because Bubs knows the streets in and out and he can find no peace on the streets at all. And so it's it's sort of startling to see how, even though he was always on the lower rung, just how much lower that things could get for Bubbles. And so when he pulls off this revenge on Herc, to me, it was very powerful because it was probably the only point in this season where Bubs has been in a power position over anybody or anything. Right. So it was it was meaningful in in that you know in that regard. And just his character in general is that I would say the you know the reason why Bubs is a top five wire character is that we go on such a journey with him, and we both know how his journey particularly ends, and. He showed, uh, this character showed nuances, you know, the different perspectives 
The resilience. Yeah, resilience. I mean, he showed a lot of different layers to what it's like being an addict on the street in a city like Baltimore. Bubbles is, yeah, he's vulnerable. And yeah, he has some of the typical character deficits that might come with being an addict. But there's something decent about Bubs. There's something very decent about him is that he's somebody that you look at and say, well, if not for this addiction, Bubs would be that would probably be a great business owner. We know he can run yeah. a store. Anybody who runs a store out of shopping cart, I mean. Runs a store, has a work ethic, yeah. is smart, has all the, the the attributes, right? And also, like I said before, Bubs is always reaching out, man. He's always, he he's not comfortable with his dysfunction where so many other people in the, in the wire are. People that are super, super uh, important or whatever, they're so comfortable with dysfunction. And Bubs never really is comfortable with his dysfunction, which makes him a very unique character uh, in this entire series. And that is, uh, uh, that's a great, you know, kind of observation to make about him is that for the little bit that we found out about uh, Bubs' personal life, and there's more that we will find out in, in season five, obviously, but you just get the feeling and and that's the heartbreak. And also to some degree why you root for for Bubs is that he just always comes out as somebody who really should have been somebody who really mm, yeah and even he knows that what he's doing he's it's always had this feeling that he knew that what he was doing was definitely beneath him that's what makes it his character extremely charismatic i mean there's something trustworthy and decent about Bubs and you're like wow you know it makes you wonder how did he wind up in this place? Like somebody yeah. like that, you know, that's not to say that there are certain people who deserve to end up in, in these circumstances, but it's hard not to wonder just all the time, how did he wind up like this? Because this guy should not be here. He's still, he's a misfit, even though he fits into his world from a physical standpoint and just having an addiction, but he never seems like somebody who should be in that world. Johnny yeah. felt like he should be in that world. Bubs does not. Well, yeah, Johnny was kind of a scrupulous bugs. Well, not a scrupulous. Johnny was kind of just a fly by whatever. Bubs always has, Bubs just has a bigger view. And this is not in any way, I don't think either one of us are trying to say that addicts aren't shit or like they're at the bottom of the barrel or anything like that. But obviously Bubs, is, Bubs lives in a dep- depraved situation. Like he, you know, he sleeps in a row house. He's lives a very unhealthy lifestyle. He's He's not thriving. And so someone with all the attributes that we pointed out, you wonder why they don't thrive. You wonder what set of circumstances. And like we talked about it before, you know, you wonder kind of how Bubs, you know, got to where he is. And you you see the relationships that he has with his sister. I know that's before and obviously a little bit after. But you can tell that there's been a significant amount of pain there. That there's been a lot of times that both of them have tried. There's been a lot of times that the family's tried and he just hasn't been able to do it. Uh, but now, but even despite that, he's measured to eke out a level of power mm. in a weird way mm. on the streets. Bubs has a function. Bubs yeah. is useful. And he has, he's important in a way. And this is the first time in this series that we're seeing Bubs and he's lost that sort of power and importance. He's not important right now. He's just another victim. He's just another victim that can't get somebody to help him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, his relationship with Sherrod is really interesting because it's the the time, the only time we see Bubs taking on, is it a, too much of a stretch to call it like a father figure role? He wasn't really that with Johnny. It was more like a big no. brother, but the Sherrod situation is definitely more like a father figure role. Yeah, so Bubs is taking on this this role where he clearly... He has started to feel responsible for Sherrod, which is, again, it's much different than with Johnny because I don't think he didn't he didn't want to see anything bad happen to Johnny. But I don't think he felt the same level of responsibility. And maybe a a lot of that has to do with Sherrod's age. I think Bubs also sees something in Sherrod that reminds him of himself as somebody. Yeah. yeah, Somebody who has a gentleness and even a decency about him, even though Sherrod has been mixed up in some stuff. But, you know, the re- the reality is that, you know, he did not have the right coping mechanisms to survive. And maybe on some level, Bubs is thinking that if he can just kind of put Sherrod on the right path, for some reason, 
or that in some way will translate to him feeling better about himself. Bubs feels yeah. this need to help other people because I think it helps him feel a little bit better about the situation that he's in, that it's not all so purposeless. And right. Sherrod gives him purpose. You can He can see that in somebody. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, our man Bubs and, you know, his story is, again, um, continuing to evolve because it takes it, it's fascinating how many turns that Bubs' story overall takes because it's, it's still got, you know, two major ones that are about to happen that are. Um, yeah. We haven't even really start to see the whole thing. Yet. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. So it's like we have not. So, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into best scenes. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. All right, Van, now we're at the moment where we talk about some of our favorite scenes from A New Day. Uh, what were some of yours? Mm, so, I got a lot of them here. Officer Walker's Get Back. Love that. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Love that. Get and creative. Uh, creative very on creative. top of that. Great. Very creative. Uh, when Sherrod comes back to Bubs, nice moment between those two guys. Mm -hmm. Bodie and McNulty's lunch. Health department shut chicken George again. I had to duck in here for cover. Boys off the hook today. A good day to be cross-lighting West Baltimore. Y'all behind on your quotas or some shit? What the fuck? Seems one of my side got jumped last night. All right, Walker. <laughs> I heard about that shit. Threw paint on him. <laughs> Walker, asshole. You playing dirt, you get dirty. We should do this again. Don't go making any furtive moves. No doubt. Don't break a pencil point. You know what's so powerful about that is that when you go back, See how short that scene actually is. But it's, it's a very lot. Short. It's very short, but it's a lot packed in it. The only right. thing I couldn't tell, and I don't know if you could, is was this another pit beef stop? I couldn't tell what the food was. I don't think it was pit beef. Okay. Because the pit beef are like they're a little small. Right. We gotta get out to Baltimore for this pit I'm beef. I'm telling you, <laughs> you go to Baltimore, the ringer, ringer, send us. We're gonna do the final episode in Baltimore. This was the final episode of our season finale in Baltimore. We should just do a, a food tour. Pit beef. And Faley's. I was just looking on Faley's website. They'll send you the crab cakes. I might do that. But uh, no, so I, I enjoyed that scene. So I see, like I said, two old soldiers talking about past wars and new stuff. You can tell there's a respect there. Burrell and Carcetti is a good scene. The Randy and Michael fight when Preswell gets involved. There's a lot of great scenes in here. Um, but I'm going to go to the most important ones now. I liked Carcetti mobilizing the entire city by telling every department different lies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and look how quickly they mobilized. Huh? And they mobilized. Omar and Prop Joe was a great scene. But the two best scenes to me are Lester at the playground at the end. Um, just seeing Lester's detective work. 
and Albert and his mother. I cried. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my anxiety is a little bit up or <laughs> whatever. But watching the scene this time, I cried. I went home yesterday. My mom was on the couch. She did. Me said best I come to school. But... That makes sense. I mean, it was, it, it, it was you know, Albert at, at different points, like you've seen him lash out, but he was clearly on another level. And yeah. then, you know, he, he completely breaks down and was glad he was able to trust, you know, Bunny enough to tell him. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it just, it reminded me of a situation in my, in my own family where I had, uh, you know, some wow. relatives. Yeah, where they, young relatives, they were off at, at school or when they left for school, their mother was alive. And, when they came back, she was in bed or they thought she was alive. She was in bed and they came home and she was still in bed and they thought that was strange and it turned out she was dead. And so, yes, it's really, you know, clearly messed up. And so seeing Albert and just how volatile he was and to God knows what that might have taken to go to school, you know, the next day with your mother having died on your couch the day before. So very powerful scene. And you wonder about these kids. Well, you don't wonder, you know this is the kind of trauma that they're living with and they're dealing with. And just to kind of see that. And that scene in and of itself is one of the best acted and directed scenes of this entire season. There is a slow pull into focus on Bunny's face when he hears that, right? They both bring Bunny out of the background into focus. And at the same time, Bunny reacts to that news. And Major Colvin, who, despite the fact that he's been a police officer for 30 years, and now even he, everything that he's seen, everything that he's been through, everything that he's done, even he physically reacts to the horror of a young man finding his mother dead on the couch. Yeah. I mean, even he knows how fucked up that is. Right. Which is honestly a real testament to Bunny because given all the things that he's seen, it is sort of a wonder that he has any empathy or still left, you know, after right. seeing some of the things that he has. So for him to be able to provide some comfort in that moment, you know, it's pretty a pretty stark contrast. I would say for me, uh, you just to expand a little bit, when, you know, Michael beating up those kids who were trying to bully Randy, because now word is out in the neighborhood that Randy's the snitch. Right. Or Randy is a snitch. And this is creating quite a a dangerous situation for Randy wherever wherever he goes. Fuck is up with y'all? You might want to have a word with your boy here. Yo, little bitch was talking to the police, too. I ain't been doing no snitching. Fuck you ain't. Man, he's about to peel himself right now, man. <laughs> you ain't gonna stand by no rat, motherfucker, is you? Nah. I ain't standing with no rat. say in this episode every scene Michael was in was very significant and what you're seeing in all these scenes is a change in Mike because you see Randy was laying on the ground and he's like unconscious and he's got blood everywhere and Mike has some blood too but he was beating the shit out of those dudes beating the hell out of them yeah he was beating the shit out of him and what we see from Mike for you know kind of we're seeing a transformation. There's some, not just edginess to Mike, there is some violence that is in him that wasn't as obvious, but it's becoming more and more pronounced to the point where maybe my favorite scene in this was when Naaman, the thing that makes his relationship with Naaman so fascinating, Naaman and Mike know how to read each other. The way they relate is the fact that they see through each other's bullshit. They see through, they see right into each other. And so mm-hmm. that's why their conversations, they're constantly sort of calling each other out for their for their own bullshit. And so when Naaman says to Mike, it's like lately you taking off the mask. He's just like, we seeing who you really are now. Yeah. We didn't see this guy before because he was always quiet, withdrawn to himself. But now that Bug's father is gone, it's that it's that if Mike has given himself frankly, permission to be as savage as he possibly can. You know, he's tapping into that anger all the time. Naaman also says, It's not that you do shit. It's how you do. 
because right. he's seeing a viciousness in Mike that he hasn't seen before. And so I thought right. that scene was really um, great between the two of them. Mike then turns right around and questions Naaman's heart. So like, you wouldn't Correct. have stood tall? Like you, like, don't tell me you wouldn't have done anything. So right. like, you, like there's no hiding between those two guys. Yeah. I mean, they, they are constantly exposing each other all the time. Uh, another scene I really enjoyed was when Daniels tells tells Lester that he's his guy. He's like, motherfucker, as far as I'm concerned, you are major crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for them to be kind of reunited again, it's like, okay, back to the good old days. And immediately further highlighting Herc's just ridiculous incompetence is that Lester is on the scene all of five minutes and dissolved uh, a whole ass, you know, citywide you know, um, serial murderer <laughs> in, in yeah. like un, under 10 minutes. I also thought that scene was great between Lester, Bunk, and Herc when they first find out how Herc has truly managed to thoroughly fuck up this situation. Because when Bunk gets mad, it's pretty hilarious. The boy was to come to me. You know the goddamn G.O. It's homicide's call. You don't go putting your paws in my murder, you simple fuck. Hey, you talking to a sergeant. Oh, fuck your whoa, fucking take, stripes. Whoa, take it easy, Bunk. Oh, Herc is trying to help us here. Man, he messed in my murder. He paid. Well, give him a chance. We can work something out. It's easy for you to say you ain't the primary on this. Motherfucker. What got into him? He's emotional. He's been working this case for a long time. It's always super hat mad when when uh when Bunk gets upset. Always. Yeah, always. And and to that end, uh, another I think funny scene is when you know Rhonda and Daniels. Suddenly, they are a power couple. <laughs> like, they're attacking a this together. A big time power right? couple. And people like, are looking at them like, yo, they look good together and stuff like that. Like, they, they go in there, they're about to save the goddamn whole city together. They are. It's crazy. And they ask the police officers what they want. It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> they in here, like, really running some shit. So, that's an interesting sight to see. So, those are some of the best scenes from both of us in this episode. All right, now let's move on to what aged the best. What aged the best for you? What aged the best to me in this one is Lean With It, Rock With It, the song. I hadn't heard that in a while. That's a classic, Jamel. Yeah, that is a classic. <laughs> I like the fact that uh, Chris gets a chance to let his hair down a little bit. We don't see Chris being a real person. They down there, and Chris goes, yeah, he's turn that up. That's my joint. <laughs> I know, Lean you know, I was, it, it was funny when I was watching that scene and I was thinking like, I think that might be the first time I've seen Chris actually smile. <laughs> smile. Yeah, he's like, that's my that's my joint right there. He was excited about it. So I heard Lee with a rock with him. I'm like, yeah, man, Chris. Hey, <laughs> Look at that. With a there, smile Chris. after beating somebody to death. Look after beating somebody to death last episode. <laughs> that aged pretty good. I didn't really have anything else that aged really too good in this episode. Did you have some more stuff? You know, what's interesting about this one is that, and this is how you can always tell on the wire when you're getting toward the end, is because they are busy in many respects, like wrapping up a lot of storylines and also kind of expanding some others that may carry on to the next one. So this was a very fast moving episode, even though the length wasn't any different than the, the rest of them usually are. And to the point where like some of the other subtleties that normally accompany an episode, I didn't feel like they were necessarily as prominent in this one as we've seen them, you know, kind of before. So I didn't actually have anything for what age the best. Uh, but I agree with you about Lean with the Rock with it. It was funny because I was, I had to actually rewind that a couple of times to catch exactly, you know, what song it is. And my other takeaway, by the way, from that scene is, is when, you know, I, I, even the goons, there's always something about them that maybe humanizes them a little bit. As again, with Weebay, it was the fish. With Chris's music. Notice yeah. how much he knows about music. Yeah. This song. And then when they would start talking about the the Baltimore morning show a couple episodes back and and Baltimore, you know, music artists that they should know with DJs. It's like, ah, Chris used he's to be on the music scene. Right. You know, yeah. you know, you know what else kind of humanized Chris? I hate to say it, but his brutal beating of Bugs Dad. Yeah, it did. It's yeah. weird, right? Because right. like Because you knew that was coming from a place of somebody who'd been abused before. Right, and that made you kind of see, oh, there's a reason behind all of this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so that for sure. Um, but, yeah, you have anything to age the worst? I did. It was two things, both involving Naaman. One, um, at the top of the episode when they're at the Chinese food place, Naaman lets out a slur. Did not age yeah, well in reference to age. age. 
right? Yeah, Asian that, people, that yeah. ages really, really badly. I mean, it wasn't acceptable then, but I remember growing up, it, I used to hear that slur often, often, yeah. because in Detroit, like, there's a ton of Chinese food. Like, Chinese food is exceptional in Detroit. It's really, really good. It's is no, that true? It's very true. It's on point. You know, every time I'm home, it's just one particular place that I like to go. Because, like, one, there are dishes in Detroit that you get at Chinese food places that you cannot and you will never see anywhere else. Like, one of the things we do is, like, almond boneless chicken. Every time, I, it took me a while to realize, and going to San Francisco, New York, that nobody else knows what the fuck that is. That's only a Detroit thing. What is it? So, it is, it's, it's, it's chicken, and it's, like, fried. It's, like, a, not necessarily fried chicken breast, but some kind of fried chicken patty. That they right. dice up a little bit and they put this gravy on it. And uh-huh. over this gravy on it, over a bed, a shrimp fried rice, it's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, what's it called? It's so good. Almond boneless chicken. Oh, wow. I've never, I've never even heard of that. Before. Yeah, see, yeah, no, most people haven't. They're like, what the hell is that? I was like, it's a Detroit thing. So, so yeah, but he uses an unfortunate slur um, there. Also, what to me ages poorly, and I've had friends of mine who have gone on like work retreats and they said they've done this. I don't. I would like to think they they just don't do this shit anymore. Trust exercises, like the trust fall. Yeah, the trust fall. Like eh, don't know if that age well. Right. I I, I don't. I, I I refuse to do the trust fall. They tried to get me to do a trust fall at Best Buy. At Best right, Buy. I, yeah, we were having a a thing, and some guy came in to get morale up or something like that. I can't remember why, but they, they were trying to do. They tried to get me to do a trust fall. Like I'm not doing a trust fucking fall <laughs> for fucking nine dollars an hour. Fuck out of here! Like I'm not, I'm not doing a, I'm not doing a trust fall, boy. I tell you what, man. That's so funny. I just said that. <laughs> oh, so, am, I, am I sensing a sidebar coming? It, it's not a sidebar. It's a side realization. Mm. I just said nine dollars an hour. Like that's not a lot of money, right? And right. I guess right now, for me, I think for, for the people, for the average, um, for most people, that is. Uh, it's not even if you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic status, you, living off nine dollars an hour for anybody would be damn difficult, right? But but to me, at that time in life, God damn it, that didn't seem like all the money in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Like I remember, were you, were you paying rent then? No, I wasn't. See, so right. see, see, like it, 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 if that didn't seem like all the money, I remember they told me they were like, we're gonna bump your pay up to $9 an hour and then and make you full time. I was like, yo, what the hell? <laughs> I'm getting these. They must be crazy. And then it went from nine. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was making, when I started making 12, 13, you couldn't tell oh, me Oh, that's nothing. when you up there with the big boys. Yeah, man. Like, that's, that's crazy. And you think about it, if you work in an eight-hour shift, that's like $80 a day. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, you know what I mean? It was like, that's like 80 bucks a day. And then they take taxes out of that, man. God bless everybody out there who's, who's, uh, who's working hard. But I don't know. You just think about it. It's like a, uh, and I remember I worked at McDonald's for less than that. I worked at McDonald's for fry money. I worked for, at McDonald's. For fry money. <laughs> I, yeah. I worked at McDonald's for fry money. It wasn't even, that wasn't even the, you go someplace and you're working for five bucks an hour. It's just like, it's crazy. You know what I mean? It, but I, but once again, I had money to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it was Louisiana where you could probably have like a uh, 4,100 square foot house for like three, uh, $300 a month. So, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just totally different back home. So, um, but no, trip down memory lane in my mind, but trust falls. No, I remember I'm thinking I'm 350 pounds. I'm not about to do a trust fall with y'all. Well, right I now. just, okay. So trust falls makes sense. If they're somehow connected to the job that you do, like if it's something that requires ah, you, right, okay. to have have that level of trust in a in a in a work colleague and a teammate, but I'm sorry, working at Best Buy does not fit the the threshold of that. Like, I mean, what what possible trust issues? I mean, you, you may not generally like everybody you work with, but it's not like if they don't put the CDs back, then like. Somebody ain't gonna make it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like what? Like, I would understand why doctors do a trust fall. I would understand why firefighters do one, like, or cops. Like, that makes sense. These are life mm-hmm. and death jobs. It's like, all yeah. right, you know, not stocking enough iPhone cords. Like, that shit ain't a life. <laughs> like, so I don't get why you nah, would need right. to do that. So that you're makes right. it even worse that you did that. Uh, anything aged the worst for you? 
Um, Marlo was re- reading the magazine. Just don't see people reading them anymore. Mm-hmm. And they had a big boom box when they were doing Lean yeah. With Yeah. Did you have a big boom box? I had a big boom box back then. You had to have one. Now oh, yeah. what you have is a Beats pill or some kind of deal like that. You stream everything from your phone, but you had to have a big boom box then. because With the, you with had the to dual cassettes? <laughs> dual cassettes or at the end of it, uh, the end of it. At the towards the later, they had the boombox with the little thing in the middle where you put your C your your CD. Yeah, you clamp down the <laughs> CD. You know, you sound Whoa. super old, man. Talk about with the thing in the middle. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you physically held a music CD? Oh, I can tell you. So, uh, I guess this is sort of a sidebar. Is uh, definitely a sidebar. Um, the last time was actually a couple of weeks ago because uh, at my wedding, I'm coming up on my first uh, on my uh, first wedding anniversary. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. So at my wedding, Music Soul Child sang me down the aisle. And uh, one for of my, real? Yeah, for real. Like the Music Soul Child? Yes, the mu- Music Soul Child. Yes, he sang me down the aisle. And he who's also. The most famous, who's the most famous person at your wedding? Uh, probably Gabrielle Union. That would be my guess. <laughs> I, I don't know what look you're giving me right now. Anyway, as I was saying. So he Gabrielle sang me Gabrielle Union was at your wedding? She was at my wedding. You famous, famous. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. So, uh, uh-huh. so he sang, and he also sang at the reception. But the song he sang me down the aisle to um, was his song, So Beautiful. But he didn't do uh-huh. the version he normally does, the one that you hear if you have his al- have this album this is on. He did a special version for me for the wedding. And because he's such a tremendous guy, he sent me and my husband not just the flash drive, of the song that he sang, but also uh-huh. he sent a CD and the the jacket of the CD was one of our wedding photos. Oh, that's dope. Yes, as a, as a first wedding anniversary gift. So right. that's why I held the CD is because it had my song, wedding song on it. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, cool. yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a fucking awesome story that I can top <laughs> of. I feel a little fucked up. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got Music Soul Child at the wedding. You got Gabrielle Union at the wedding and stuff like that. That's great. Did Dwayne Wade come? Dwayne Wade could not make it. Gab brought a friend of hers. Oh, I should say ours, but Gab knew her first. It's her friend, but I know who she, who it was that she brought. So okay, well enough of that. <laughs> Famous Maser, Maser, Maserati male. Uh, <laughs> How did I know that was coming? A lot of filed this very significant filed this away for later's in this one. What were some of the ones that you had? So I got the ring. The ring yes. changes hands again. Yeah. The ring is always a, every time it you is. see the ring, follow it. The ring yeah. follows away from there. Yep, that is old face Andre's ring. For those who Gr- don't recall, who mm-hmm. Marlo disposed of. <laughs> I have Bunny and Naaman being playful together. Yes, and th- and just their relationship period mm-hmm. is really evolving. They're growing closer. Um, mm-hmm. Bunny has become a steadying force, uh, you know, in his life. In Naaman's life. Uh, also, the scene between Bodie and McNulty, their little energy, you start to think, you know, if Bodie had a problem, where might he Big turn? foreshadowing moment right there. Big, huge foreshadowing moment. And of course, Lester getting back control, or not getting back control, Lester getting control of major crimes. Yep. All of those things are big. Fathers away for later. A couple that I had was... The neighborhood finding out that Randy is a snitch because mm-hmm. that's about to put Randy in a, a really horrible situation as if it's not already horrible. And also with Omar confronting Prop Joe, he mentions, he lays out the whole situation in front of Cheese, which I would file that away for later when he says, mm. uh, when he tells him that, hey, Prop Joe, he says, you're the one who told me about Marlo's poker game. Right. Uh And so Cheese hears all of this conversation and all of what really, really happened. So definitely file that away for later. And for those who haven't forgotten, because we actually haven't seen Method Man in a while at this point. Remember, this Randy Daddy. That's all I gotta say. Randy's pops. <laughs> this Randy's pops. <laughs> By the way, I have a I have a uh an observation that doesn't really have a category. Okay. Can I fit it? Can I fit it in here? Yeah, of course. Herc is the villain of season four. So when we do like worst person or whatever, like it's when we easily do, like, we'll, hurt. Yeah, when we wrap up our our season four awards, we'll have to we'll have to give this some thought. You think it's you think Herc's the worst person in season four? Think about it. 
every, almost everything that is going wrong at this point, Randy's situation is Herc's fault. Bubble's situation is Herc's fault. Like, there's so many things that are going wrong in this season just because he ain't shit. Real things. He really ruined Randy. He really is having bubbles being fucked up. The whole nine, all of it, all, this, all of this stuff, like all of the shit that's going on uh, now, all the tumult with the ministers and all of that stuff like that, all Herc's fault. It's all Herc. Herc, every time you see Herc in this season, he's doing some fucked up shit. He is the villain of season four. He yeah. is, uh, unwittingly. Even right. Sidner. Like, but, that, like, but that's what makes it worse, though. Right. I think the fact that... Because it's unwitting. Because it's unwitting. Is that this all... And, and because of how it started and why. That it's not mm -hmm. even... It's one thing if you fuck up and it's because you were trying to, trying to do something good or trying to do something selfless or trying to maybe, you know, solve a crime. This entire chain of events is set off by him doing stupid shit. Things that like shit. are just taking unnecessary L's about him trying to surveillance somebody and he doesn't have permission to do that. Right. That's where it's all like because he's forever tramping on a uh, trampling on civil liberties because, you know, he never met an excessive force complaint he didn't like because they mm -hmm. all stem from his neglect, incompetence and the fact that he does not deserve to be a police officer that when the shit blows up in his face, it is that makes it even harder to take because of why it's there. Like McNulty, for, for all his shenanigans, all his bullshit, McNulty doesn't do shit like that. You know what I'm saying? It's true. Yeah. It's true. He, he, like, at least, at least even in his most selfish, self-righteous moments, McNulty is always trying to do shit to nab somebody who has, who is causing great harm. Right? Mm, Herc yeah. is just doing shit to often just cover his own ass and that's it. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so you you might be onto something uh, with that. We'll we'll have to give that a deeper discussion when we get down to um, our season four awards. All right, finally we have arrived at trivia, and so I mentioned I have some good uh, background to give you guys when it comes to Officer Walker. Who see that's why I can't give him worse. By the way, I think Officer Walker that's the villain of season four. I, I, I hear why. I hear why you would say that because. When it comes to ramification, but even there's some ramifications with Officer Walker too. You there know? is. I just I just think that Walker's like Walker does things that have little bitty effects, and Hurt does things that have these massive, massive. Like he's like the Joker, right. these massive, huge, big effects. But I get what you're saying though. Yeah. So uh, Officer Walker, Officer Edward Walker, would be his full name, who was played by Johnny Lewis Brown. So David Simon created this character, and he had. Basically, one stipulation, he had to be black. And so if you're wondering why that is the case, David Simon told Alan Sepinwall, who is a Wire guru, uh, who has broken down every single episode of The Wire, certainly an additional resource tool that I use in preparation for this podcast. And here's what David Simon told Alan Sepinwall about why he insisted that Officer Walker be black. Uh, Simon says, Walker was conceived as as black because tellingly when Ed, as in Ed Burns, his co-creator and I were on the corner in West Baltimore, we noted that many of the more brutal, more shady patrolmen were actually black. Wow. Why is this so hard to say, but perhaps a mercenary or brutal patrolman is camouflaged in some sense. If he is African-American, a white officer engaging in predatory practices in the ghetto would be subject to all kind of, of racial us against them stereotypes and stigmas with a black officer behaving. So the racial politics are rendered moot. And from the perspective of some black cops, many of whom have working class roots and who have reached their newfound authority by having to eschew the temptations of the street and keep to a moral code. There is often I have found a contempt for the black underclass that some white cops would dare never exhibit. It, it perhaps it's perhaps, excuse me, easier for a black cop having reached his station in life to heap contempt on those who have not done so saying to himself if i did it why the hell can't they white mm. cops as outsiders may not be subject to the same self-conscious judgments walker is a more walker is more of a function of class consciousness than race consciousness i get 
a sense that people who still think police brutality is linked to racism rather than classism are about 10 years behind the street. Mm. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Hey, remember, remember Boys in the Hood? Yeah, that was their officer there. Yeah. You yeah. think you tough, don't you? You think you, you must be one of them little rolling <laughs> sixties. <laughs> and it was awful. Right? right. Um uh, so, what age what age the best, man? The sixties. <laughs> Shout out to Big U. <laughs> Shout out to Big U. Right. right. Uh J the sixties age the best. The sixties still around here doing their thing. That was ninety fucking two, man. God damn. Yes. But it makes a lot of sense. And I, I know that there's a... Maybe 91. Boys in the Hood, 91, I think. Anyway. Was it sorry. 91? Okay. Um, I think it was 91. But yeah. Walker's character, is, uh, his character makes a lot of sense in that regard. And I know people often have um, arguments and discussions about, you know, race versus class. And it's all kind of interrelated. But a lot of the kind of, um, you know, intra-racism that he's discussing in his explanation of his character are things, you know, that we have had conversations in our community about is that there are, uh, you know, I, I, speaking of Baltimore, Freddie Gray, Freddie Gray, I believe most of those officers that tortured him were black. And yeah. so um, when people say there's institutional racism in the police system, at least for me, when I talk about it, I'm not referring to only just white people. <laughs> and sure. So, cause it's yeah. a system. That's why I call it a system. And just because you're black or whatever, or even of another ethnicity, if you're following the system, which is institutionally set up for certain things, then the results will not change based on the skin color of the officer. All right. We finally arrived at the moment of truth, Van. Who do you think won this episode? No one. No one? Not a single soul? Not to me. I think (laughs) because there were a bunch of ties, but the episode moved so... It floated. It's a great episode. Right. It floated. This episode is kind of like a Spurs basketball episode. You know, that doesn't how, sound complimentary, man. <laughs> well, no. What I mean is it's very efficient, very, very good, but not really relying on one player too much. Not to me. I really tried it. I could have given it to someone, but my heart says in this particular episode that I... That that nobody actually won. <laughs> You're like everybody lost. I mean, I could see why you you would say that because you know some of this. Sometimes it's hard when we're picking these winners to not be influenced by what we know is to come. Like I try to right. keep it to just this episode, so I can say, mm-hmm. okay, in this moment, this is who won, and you know whatever. Uh, so I get it because there was a there was a lot of people who certainly took some L's in this as a result of, you know, we talked about all the L's that, that her handed to a lot of folks because of this and Randy's situation. So I get it. I understand. I, however, uh, did pick a winner. And I thought the winner of this episode, frankly, was Prop Joe. Because if there was somebody who should have caught a bullet, who, you know, and this is why, but this gets back to, to something, a principle we should all live by. Don't ever make promises that you really have no intention of keeping or in a position to keep them. The moment that Omar promised Bunk that he wouldn't lay any more bodies in the street, that was a mistake. Right. That was some shit that you just say to him and you go about your business. Okay? (laughs) Because old Omar would have put a hot one in him and cheese right in that that store. Right? Mm -hmm. Because he certainly has hunted and killed people for less. Right. And this ain't the first time that he has run into this situation with this dude. Right? right. Because he set up the parlays with Stringer. Because Prop Joe is always in the middle of some bullshit going down to somebody else and being like, I ain't even know. I ain't do it. You know, that's right. him. Right? And when Stringer was setting up Omar with Brother Muzon, who was the intermediary? Prop Joe. Now you got another situation on his hand where Prop Joe is coming to him supposedly supposedly on some making a man shit for right. bringing some other drama into his life. And it turns out he set him up to rob one of the biggest drug dealers in the city. He ain't saying he wouldn't have done this shit anyway, had he known. What he is saying is, how dare you set me up for your situation so you done double-crossed me again, right? Yeah. So yeah. the fact that Prop Joe is able to 
make a proposition and live, that is a win like no other because Omar rarely lets somebody fuck him over more than once. That's Oh, wow. Coming <laughs> with the heat there. Well said. <laughs> yeah, you made me feel like my shit was wrong now, but I stick to it. Nobody won. <laughs> That's right. Stick to it, Van. You have to make sure you stand on these principles. Very important. That is going to do it for us. Episode 11, A New Day is in the books. We'll be back as we are counting down to a, a tremendous finish here in season four. We have two more episodes left. And so up next is episode 12 called That's Got His Own. I know that phrase quite well. So we'll see y'all then. Thank you for supporting us. Continue to listen to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all again next time. <laughs>